0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm one of the pastors here at APA. And I'm excited to be sharing with you this morning to dig into the Bible and to explore what God has been speaking to me about this week. Now, it's been a couple of months since I last preached here at APA, and if you notice that I'm more insightful, maybe a little bit more wise, uh, it's because our family welcomed a baby since I last preached, and. Uh, with a baby comes a lot more fatherly wisdom, obviously. On, on the other hand, uh, if you notice that I'm a little bit more scattered, a little less coherent, it's because our family welcomed a baby since we last <laughs> preached. And with a baby comes a lack of sleep uh, and makes it, things a little bit harder. I'm a little bit nervous about this sermon just because yesterday, as I was practicing going through it Uh, I had a crying baby and I was just kind of like rocking her like this so if if I start doing this it's not some meaningful hand gesture it's just me going into my default mode but no matter what I said I couldn't get her to calm down so apparently this will be an upsetting sermon I'm sorry for everybody in advance (laughs) but in all seriousness I did want to just say thank you to our church family We have been so blessed by the love and support we have received over the last few months. Through baby clothes, prayers, gifts, meals, and so much more, thank you for loving us well and supporting us as our family expands. Now last week, Pastor Dave kicked off a new sermon series called POV, which stands for, as you see on the screen, Point of View. Now, we had some confusion in staff meeting. It does not stand for person of virtue, pre-owned vehicle, or porcupines ordering vespas. It's point of view. See, Al, you didn't need to pray for my jokes. They're killing. (laughs) Never mind. Uh, So we're looking at instances in the Bible where people encounter Jesus. And as a result, they have their point of view radically transformed. Because that's what happens when we encounter Jesus. Amen? Our point of view is radically, unequivocally changed. And the New Testament is filled with these encounters of people approaching Jesus with their own worldviews and perspectives, and Jesus bringing correction and truth through teaching, prayer, and miracles. People's reactions to Jesus vary, some embrace the change of point of view that he offers. And they leave transformed by joy, peace, hope, and love. And others push back, rejecting God's truth. And they leave plotting, angry, or frustrated. In the whole of the New Testament, there is only one instance where someone encounters Jesus and leaves feeling sad. And that's the story that we're going to dive into today. Because why not? It's the story of a rich man's point of view being radically shaken. Now, many of us are are familiar with this story. It's found in Mark 10, verses 17 to 28. It's the story of a rich young ruler. It's found in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is an important story. It remained in the hearts and minds of three different authors as they wrote about the life and teaching of Jesus. There are subtle differences between the accounts, but uh, one fun fact is that none of them actually call the man, the rich young ruler. Only Matthew says that he was young. Only Luke calls him a ruler. And they all call him rich. And yet in my subconscious, I think of him as the rich young ruler. I've amalgamated it together. And that's not theologically important at all. I just found it interesting what my mind has done. But what is theologically important is that all three accounts drive home the same point. That it costs us everything to enter into the kingdom of God And that we can't do it on our own. So, rather than blitz through this story, I want us to go through it slowly. Looking at our passage, one verse at a time. And my hope is that this would deepen our understanding of the viewpoint that Jesus proposes. That we wouldn't rush to assumptions about what Jesus is saying. And that we wouldn't assume that we've already learned this lesson. Because it's one that we need to learn over and over and over again. My hope is that that as we take time looking at Mark chapter 10, that we would take time for self-examination. Examination that leads to a desire to change and that we would invite the Holy Spirit to change our point of views as well. With that in mind, let's just pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to learn and grow as a church family. And, and before we jump into things, God, we just invite your Holy Spirit here. God, we, we, we bring a stillness to our bodies, our minds, our spirits, because we want to be transformed by you. We want to learn and grow. We want to have our point of view changed. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Uh, I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. It's also up on the screen for you. Uh, Let's begin. Verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, verse 17 sets the stage with a really vivid image. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. I imagine that he's on a dirt highway, ready to set off. He's already got his Spotify road trip playlist playing. He's ready to go. And then out of nowhere, a man comes running as fast as he can, plops down right in front of Jesus, right in the dirt. Out of breath, he asks an incredibly complex and yet important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man isn't someone who's injured or sick, looking for a miracle. He isn't a Pharisee looking to trick Jesus. He's genuinely concerned about his faith. And so he offers up his pride and his dignity, humbling himself before Jesus, hoping that this teacher can show him the way forward. And so Jesus presses pause on his playlist and responds to this man's plea for guidance, but not in the way that we would expect. Verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. Now, this isn't Jesus being self-deprecating, saying that he isn't God. Instead, Jesus is making it clear who defines goodness. It is only God who defines what is truly good. Only God can say what is good and what is not good. And consequently, this question that you're asking, only God can answer it. Now, I think it's easy for us to skip this small interaction and go straight to Jesus' answer to the rich man's actual question, but I think Jesus' mild rebuke to the man calling him good is especially important for us today. See, in our culture and society, the prevailing viewpoint that arises from our firm grip on individualism is that truth and goodness are relative. That we are the guardians of our own truth and understandings of goodness. But Jesus makes it clear. That's not how we're called to live. It's God who is truly good. And so God defines goodness, not us. And yet we see ourselves as the arbiters of truth and goodness, even in the church, when we judge one another, thinking, oh, that person isn't very good. They watched that movie. Or that preacher, he, he isn't very good. He interpreted the Bible in this way when it clearly means something else. Oh, you know, that church over there, they're no good. They have fancy lights and they, they worship in this way or they don't speak in tongues. Hold up a second. Is it our job to define what is good and what is not? Is it our job to judge the goodness of one another? And the answer, a resounding no. Whose job is it? It's God's job, not ours. We are not the judge of what is good. And we need to continually be reminded of this fact. How are you feeling? Are you feeling convicted at this point? I know that as I was writing it, I was feeling convicted. And you know what? That is amazing. Because that means we just encountered Jesus and had our point of views changed. So let's keep pressing in. Uh, so we aren't the arbiters of goodness, but lucky for us, the good God has written His good will for His people. He's written it in the Scriptures. That's what the Bible is all about. And here we find rules that help us live in step with God's definition of goodness. That's exactly where Jesus points the rich, rich young man in verse nineteen. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably recognize Jesus' answer. Jesus offers six of the ten commandments. Now, what's going on here? Why would Jesus only list six of the ten commandments, and why these particular six? Is it that Jesus forgot four of the commandments? I mean, probably not, since he's God and he wrote them. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Jesus only listed the Six Commandments on purpose. And that's because there are two patterns that, that I notice when, uh, when I look at Jesus' list. The first is that the commandments Jesus mentions revolve around our relationships with one another. They're about how we live in community, how we love one another well. At their core, they communicate a basic morality. They teach us the basics of what is right and wrong, and they give us a glimpse of what God views as good. But there's something important that's missing from these six commandments. They fail to touch on how we are to relate with God. And so in doing so, Jesus sets up a follow-up question that will move the rich man beyond morality and merely doing good. Jesus begins by offering basic Jewish morality and practice in order to demonstrate how God desires so much more. So get ready for that, but that's a little bit of spoiler. Sorry. The second pattern is that Jesus is mostly telling the rich man what not to do. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie or cheat. Don't dishonor your parents all while the rich man is asking what he needs to do, not what not to do. What do I need to actually do? But don't worry, again, Jesus is going to get to that in a moment. And so the young man replies in this way, Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. He's an expert in what not to do. He's rich in wealth and he's rich in morality. This isn't the man trying to show off. He isn't delusional. He was most likely speaking the truth. Keeping the commandments was the foundation of the Jewish faith. So those who took it seriously were able to stick to these strict requirements. This is the same confidence that Paul held before meeting Jesus. He writes of it in Philippians 3 verses 4 to 6. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And here's the kicker. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Obeying the law wasn't an impossible task. It took great zeal and effort, but it was possible. And yet, even after having done everything right, the rich man is still drawn to wonder, what more do I need to do? Because deep down, he knows it's not enough. He seems to believe that simply obeying the law in order to gain eternal life is not enough. There must be something more that is required. And so he continues to listen to Jesus, hoping for this answer that he is seeking. Now, in the past, I've often looked down on the rich ruler, probably because I know how this encounter ends, but I think there's actually much to admire about him. He takes his faith seriously. He takes action when he feels there is something missing, and he's looking for more. Jesus sees this, and I love what it says in verse 21. Jesus felt genuine love for the man. He cares for this man. He longs to see him flourish. Jesus doesn't dispute the man's external performance. He doesn't tell him that he's lied before. He doesn't dwell in judgment, but in love. And from that place of love, Jesus invites the man to consider his inner life, his his heart, the place where his values are formed, and to ask a simple question. Does this place, does this inner place fall in line with the law? Looking at this list of commandments, we see that he never did anything wrong, but it still begs the question, what good did he actually do? This is a common theme that we see throughout the Bible, is that uh, obeying the law, following God's way, is meant to lead us to action. It's meant to motivate us toward loving one another. It's meant to establish a point of view where loving God and loving others is most important. And so Jesus is going to test this man's point of view. Does the rich man understand the heart of the law? And does he respond in obedience as it calls him to action? Verse 21. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him, Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now wait a second, Nick. Didn't we just talk about money? (laughs) We had four straight weeks talking about the God of money. It was a great series. Check it out on our website, apaonline.ca. But let me make it really clear before moving forward. Money is not our focus today. The money and wealth are just an example that gets at the heart of the viewpoint that Jesus longs to shape in us. See, this command for the rich young ruler to sell all of his things, this isn't a universal command though maybe God would ask the same of you, I don't know, I'm not God, but the heart behind what Jesus is asking is simple. Is God Lord of everything in your life? Is your money, your wealth, your identity more important than God? Now this is a chance for deep reflection, to examine ourselves and ask these same questions. What is our most cherished value? What is the ruling God of my life do we allow god to be lord over everything or is there something else that has higher priority because it's so easy for our priorities to shift over time and for god to slip from his rightful place as number 1 in our lives as we prioritize our safety our security our homes our families our pleasure our prestige even our church but jesus offers us the same invitation to give up everything for him But you know what I love about this invitation? There's two parts to it. The first, yes, to give up everything. But the second is to follow. Now, it's important to note how Jesus phrases this invitation to follow him. He doesn't say, follow me and we'll start giving away some of your stuff. No, he says, give up everything, then come follow me. Giving up everything is the prerequisite to following Jesus. This isn't some new biblical principle. It it reminds me of the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the thing that is most important to him. And again, this isn't some weird universal command where God is asking us to sacrifice our children. Uh, In the end, God provides a lamb to be sacrificed instead because it's not about the sacrifice itself. It's God asking the question, what is most important in your life? Is it your only son or is it me? Is it your wealth or is it me? Is it your safety, your status, your comfort or is it me? This is the point of view that Jesus looks to shift in the rich man and in all of us as well, that following God, following Jesus, that entering eternal life requires God to be Lord over everything in our lives. And this drives home an important principle, that following Jesus isn't about what we do, it's all about surrender. Now, let's be honest, this can feel scary, daunting, even overwhelming, because, I mean, Jesus demands so much. He, He says to the rich young man to sell everything, because that's what Jesus always desires from us, to be Lord of everything. But the great thing is, we're also in this together. Look around you. We've got all of these wonderful, amazing people, and every person who follows Jesus is asked to make the same sacrifice, because for every person, Jesus asks for all that they have. The sacrifice isn't measured by how much is given, but by the amount withheld for ourselves. Let me say that again. The sacrifice isn't measured by how much we give, but by the amount withheld for ourselves. Because the amount that we give just doesn't matter to Jesus. All that matters is that he's Lord over everything. And so I ask, will you give up everything to follow Jesus? Or are you going to try and hold something back for yourself? Jesus asked the young man to give up all of his wealth, to give up his identity, his security, everything he has ever worked for. That is what he must do. And so, what is his response? Well, we see in Mark 10, verse 22 At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Again, not the choice that you would hope for, definitely not the choice that Jesus hoped for in this young man. After all of this earnestness in seeking out Jesus, seeking out the path for eternal life, this man is confronted with the truth and he leaves sad. The rich man doesn't dispute Jesus' Jesus's call or teaching because he knows that Jesus has correctly called out what is lacking in his life. But at the same time, he rejects the invitation. To life. And without the truly good God ruling him, he will continue to lack that which he seeks Until he becomes like a child, powerless, defenseless, and needing his father's influence, he will be ruled by his possessions instead. Because here's the thing. Even when confronted with the truth, we have a choice. We can step toward Jesus in obedience, or we can turn away feeling sad. And my hope and my prayer is that we, as a church, would be ruled by God. That we wouldn't be a church that is dissuaded by the thought of sacrifice, but that we will put everything on the line to follow Jesus. But I know that's not an easy task, and Jesus even says as much in the following verses. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then, who in the world can be saved? They asked. Here we're given one of my favorite images in the Bible a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. A camel, which is like the largest land animal in all of Palestine and the eye of of a needle, the smallest gap found within the home. Now, let's be honest. I don't know about you. I don't encounter camels on the regular, so it can be a little bit difficult to get this picture in my mind. I mean, I was reading through commentaries, and they were trying to describe just how preposterous this one was, and one commentator said, well, a camel is not only large, but it has humps. I'm like, Yes, thank you for that information. I'm glad I'm reading this very expensive commentary. Uh, so I thought to myself, there's no way we're going to be able to like, fully understand this without some sort of visual representation. And so I was wondering, Pastor Peter, are you around? Peter? Come on, don't be hiding. Oh, Peter, you're ruining everything. Okay, I need a different volunteer then. Can I get a volunteer? Oh, Rajesh, thank you. Rajesh, come on up. Now, one of the beautiful things about the summer is that we have interns who will do whatever you want from them. And so uh, this, this week, I asked Lauren and Olivia if they could put together a camel costume just so that we could fully picture what was going on. They spent over four days working on it. And so uh, we've got a backpack that'll act as a hump. Don't worry, it is filled with water because we want to be true to life. Uh, yeah, okay. We've got... Yeah, that's that's good because they're furry. But yeah, we got to get a little bit more fur. Yeah, yeah, even more. Oh, that one goes on the back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to cover the hump. That's a great thought, Olivia. Yeah. Oh, and those are camel ears, not not antlers, camel ears. Now, for if you're if you're listening uh, later on in the week, listening to our podcast, I'm just gonna say you need to tune in to our uh, YouTube. (laughs) We'll put a timestamp to make sure everybody can quickly find this beautiful image of Pastor Rajesh as a camel. Now, I forgot to get a needle, but I figured this, this, is, this is bigger than, a, than the eye of a needle. Can you pass through it? Now, the antlers are getting stuck. <sighs> OK, try one more time. Try one more time. OK, so it's not working. I don't think I need anything else from you. That was all. Give a big round of applause for Pastor Rajesh. Thank you. There is no way we could have done this sermon without without that image, you know? We needed that. Thank you to Olivia and Lauren also for spending so much time putting that beautiful costume together. My point is this. We can't enter the kingdom of heaven on our own strength or merit. It's impossible. Just like a, a camel going through the eye of a needle, it is impossible. And so this introduces another point of view that Jesus turns on its head. Jesus is playing with the disciples' expectation of who can enter the kingdom of God because the prevailing understanding of the time was that having wealth meant that you had God's blessing. And yet we meet this rich young man who's devout in upholding Jewish morality who has been blessed with wealth just as would be expected. And yet... It's his blessing that acts as a stumbling block, keeping him from entering the kingdom of heaven, which leaves the disciples totally dumbfounded. If this guy won't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can? Here, Jesus makes the path forward abundantly clear in verse 27. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible With God, we can't do it on our own. When looking beyond, oh, check there we go, looking beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. None of us can live perfectly. Other things will continue to creep up and take God's place as number one in our lives. It's only through faith and God's grace that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's look back at what Paul wrote in Philippians three, after listing all of his credentials, all the ways in which he had justified himself according to the law, according to what he had done. He writes this in verse seven. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. So that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. So, Paul, the ultimate rule keeper, in the end knows that he hasn't done enough. He hasn't done enough. The rich young man hasn't done enough, and neither have we. We can't enter into eternal life on our own. Think back to Jesus' invitation to the rich man. Sell everything, give it all to the poor. End of story? No. Jesus says, then come, follow me. He extends an invitation to follow God the one who makes possible the impossible. He offers to walk with us and lead us, to teach us, shape us, and mold us. Because here's the thing, the message of Jesus demands far more than we think, but it also offers more than we could ever imagine. We, we give up everything, but we gain so much more. We gain grace. We gain a relationship with our creator. We gain eternal life. We gain peace, love, joy, and hope. We, we gain being who we were created to be. Isn't that worth everything? The other thing is, Jesus also isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. God gave up his only son, allowing him to live a perfect life, allowing him to be killed on a cross, all to restore relationship with us, with you, with me. God gave up everything for us, and now he asks us to give up everything for him. So what can we learn from our passage today? Well, there are three points that I, that I wanted to bring back to our attention The first is that we are not judges of what is good. God is. Our part is to listen and to obey. When we find ourselves judging others, it's time for us to repent and submit to God's authority. The second thing is that following Jesus requires giving him everything. Following Jesus isn't something that we can just add on to our lives. It isn't something that we can simply do. It requires complete surrender of everything. But this isn't a bad thing. Jesus wants us to see and know that if we have nothing but him, we still have everything. Because he is enough for us. He is all that we need. He is our provider, our protector, our sustainer. He is everything. If I have nothing but Jesus, I have everything that I need. Now I know that giving up everything is difficult. It's it's not a trivial thing that Jesus invites the rich man to do. But what I can say is this. Time and time again, when I have chosen to give everything to God, to ensure that he is Lord over all of my life, he has blessed me beyond what I could ever imagine. This sermon could easily go on for the rest of the day just by sharing stories of God's faithfulness that I've seen in my own life. When I've given God my finances, my hopes for a wife, my longing for a job, my dreams for a home, my desires for kids, when I sit and reflect on the times when I have truly surrendered those things to God, all I can can know is that my whole life is a testimony, a testament of God's faithfulness when I give him everything. He has always proven faithful. And I've never been left without, even in the midst of surrendering everything. And so, my prayer is that you would do the same as well. My prayer is that I would do that as well. Because it's a choice that is continually made over and over and over. The final thing that I would love for us to take from this passage is that we can't do it on our own. We can't live the perfect life that follows both the letter and the heart of the law, that sees God as first and foremost in our hearts at all times. We will fail. We have failed. It's just not possible. It's like trying to get Pastor Rajesh to look like a camel. Some things just aren't meant to be done. (laughs) But here's the thing. We still have hope. Our God is the God of the impossible. He sacrificed his only son so that we might inherit eternal life. All that we have to do is believe in him. And the impossible becomes possible. And so to close, I'd like for us to do two things. The first is that I'd like for us to spend time repenting. Now, if you're new to church, you might not know what that word means. This idea of repenting is is coming before God, coming before Jesus, and acknowledging, hey, I've screwed up. There have been times in my life where I've judged, I've been, been the person who's judging what is good and what is not. There have been times in my life where I haven't put you first and foremost in my life, when I haven't trusted the God of the impossible to do all things in my life. This idea of repentance is is, is acknowledging that we have screwed up and that we need Jesus. And so I'd like for us to spend time corporately and individually repenting. The second thing that I'd ask of us is after repenting, after giving these things over to God, after acknowledging our wrongdoing, that we would submit to God's authority, that we would recognize that God is the ultimate authority on goodness, that it is God who should be the God of our lives, and that it's only through God that we can be saved. Because I believe that if we spend time repenting, submitting to his authority, that we will leave changed, That we'll leave being the people He made us to be. That we won't leave empty-handed, having given everything over, but that we will leave rich in spirit, rich in blessing. Because we have our Holy Spirit, we have our Father, we have Jesus, and He is everything.